All right, so uh, young people, I work at Apologetics Press and that's basically what we do. We work on getting you the information you need to defend the Bible, to strengthen your own faith and then also to be able to defend your faith when others are attacking it. And there's a lot of that going on in this day and age, a lot of attacking uh, of the Bible and Christianity and, and one of the areas in which you will be uh, attacked is in this area of creation and what the Bible says versus what modern uh, naturalistic science would have you to believe regarding evolution. And dinosaurs are like the poster children of evolution. They, uh, they're often used as though if the dinosaurs are true, then evolution is true and there's no other option. It's almost really painted that way. And it, it doesn't help that some on the Bible side basically say, oh, dinosaurs never even existed, which is not realistic either. There's plenty of evidence that the dinosaurs actually existed. And so we have to be able to explain uh, where the, you know, what's the, how, how do you fit the dinosaurs with the Bible? Uh, is there actually evidence for the dinosaurs? When did they live? What ha ultimately happened to them from a biblical perspective? And so we're gonna be, looking at that today and, uh, and seeing what we can learn from both scripture and science. So, so do the dinosaurs disprove the Bible or do they actually fit with it? Um, to respond to these kind of questions, I wanna begin by talking about what are called scientific predictions. In science, you'll learn about what are called predictions. And we're not talking about like Bible predictions where you're foretelling the future we're talking about it. if you develop a, a theory in science, then you should be able to make predictions that when you go do scientific experiments will either help verify your theory or falsify it. So for example, let's say, let's say I theorize that there is an invisible force that uh, if, it's a, if it's a larger mass, it's gonna tend to draw other smaller masses to it, like a big magnet and I'm gonna call that gravity. Okay, so if my theory is a good theory, then I can make predictions. I can say, well, if that's true, then if I drop my remote, it should get sucked to the bigger mass of the earth, and so I can go test that. So I made a prediction, I can go test that, that'll, that'll either verify my theory or falsify it. And so that's what scientific predictions are about. Well, Bill Nye, the pseudoscience guy, as I like to call him, uh, he did a, had a debate with one of the leading creation scientists several years ago, and, and in his debate, he said, so far, Mr. Ham, he's the, he's the uh, creationist, he's the guy that uh, is over the organization that, that made the big ark encounter up in Kentucky, the life-size replica of the ark, which is fantastic, by the way. Uh, Mr. Ham, in his worldview, the creation model does not have this capability. It cannot make predictions and show results. The big thing I want from you, Mr. Ham, is can you come up with something that you can predict? Do you have a creation model that predicts something that will happen in nature? So this is a common argument that people try to make against biblical creation. And so you, if you have a legitimate science, then you should be able to make predictions like that. Then when you go out and do experiments, you can validate or falsify whatever you believe. And so, um, you should be able to say, you know, if my theory is true, then this is going to happen, you can, and therefore you can test it. Well, what, what Bill Nye did not realize, I guess because he hasn't really given our, our side a fair shake, is that we can make many, many predictions that have been verified, and in fact, 
The creation model explains the evidence way better than the evolutionary model can explain it. And you wouldn't really know that because biblical creation was outlawed from the school several uh, really decades ago now. And so you don't even get to hear what our side believes and, and the kind of evidence that we're gathering to support what the Bible actually, uh, to support what the Bible says on this subject. And so I could really go through a lot of these kind of uh, uh, predictions that we could make. And I actually have a, a long article on our website that goes through 30 of these that I wrote down very quickly in probably 45 minutes. But we're gonna go ahead and jump ahead to some of the dinosaur predictions that we would make. Uh, number 11 here, we would predict uh, that if the creation model is true, that uh, therefore, since God made all of the land creatures on what day? Sixth day. And, uh, and these were literal days based on the Hebrew and based on several Exodus 20, 11, Mark 10, 6, 11, uh, Luke 11, 50 to 51, a lot of other passages make it clear these have got to be literal days. That means that humans were created on the same day with the dinosaurs and therefore we coexisted. We, we lived at the same time as the dinosaurs. We weren't separated from them by 63 million years, which is what modern scientists would say. So if the Bible is true, we would make a prediction. We would say there should be evidence that humans and dinosaurs did in fact coexist, even though the dinosaurs are extinct now. Of course, the secular guys would say, no, they're not extinct, they turned into the birds. That's a separate subject. Uh, and we creationists have shown, no, this is, this is, that's not true. These are separate groups. But we would say, hey, uh, assuming that even though they, they may be uh, extinct now, that doesn't mean that we didn't live together in the past. So we would predict that the, there'd be evidence of that. And so you got to think about, well, what kind of evidence are we talking about? Well, it may not be in the form of, you know, say a human, human fossil found in the stomach of a, of a dinosaur or something. You're not necessarily going to find human and, and dinosaur fossils together because it's very possible, very likely, that humans and dinosaurs lived in totally separate habitats in the pre-flood world. So you wouldn't necessarily expect there to be a mixing of the fossils. Uh, and also, we find in the fossil record that your vertebrate fossils, that's the fossils that, that have the backbone, like your dinosaurs, your mammals, your uh, reptiles, your amphibians, your birds, those kind of fossils are very few and far between in the fossil record compared to your invertebrate fossils. And so they're already going to be harder to find. They just don't fossilize well. So you're not necessarily going to find the fossil evidence you're looking for. And again, you'd expect the dinosaurs to probably have been in their own ecosystem, their own habitat that they lived in before the flood. So their fossils wouldn't have probably been mixed in with the human fossils in general. But that said, we would predict that they lived on after the flood for at least a period of time, although the conditions for fossilization wouldn't have been really good after the flood, if you understand how fossils are made, which is why you don't see dinosaurs in the fossil record after the flood. But fossils aren't the only form of evidence out there. Okay, so let's say that uh, you know, if, if dinosaurs and humans existed after the flood, then we know that they mixed at that point because you didn't have as much of a mixing of the habitats and you know that they would have had to have been on the ark if they lived on after the flood. And so what kind of evidence would you expect? Well, 
what, would, what, uh, what kind of evidence would we expect if you saw a dinosaur today? What kind of evidence would you expect? Well, one of the things you'd expect is, say, pictures. You'd expect oral stories to have been passed down about what you saw, because when you see amazing things, that's what you do. So that's the kind of evidence you would expect to find. Well, sure enough, ancient dinosaur petroglyphs and carvings have been found all over the world that date back to times before scientists even had known that the dinosaurs existed, much, knew any, much less knew anything about their anatomy and the accuracy of what they would have looked like. Uh, the term dinosaur hadn't even been coined yet. That was in the 1800s because again, we didn't even know these guys existed. So how would the Anasazi Indians from like 700 years ago in Utah have known what an Apatosaurus would have looked like anatomically? Um, that's, uh, if, you, if you understand anything about um, dinosaur fossil excavation, in order to find a sauropod dinosaur like this, that's your long tail, long neck dinosaurs, you don't find the whole even complete skeleton, much less the flesh and bone, the flesh and muscle and so forth on it. You're gonna find a few pieces like the Argentinosaurus that they found. They only, only found a few pieces of that, massive vertebrae and so forth, and from that, how are they gonna know, unless you have a lot more knowledge of the entire world with regard to the fossil record, you're not gonna be able to draw what an apatosaur would have looked like, especially with the flesh and, uh, and, and uh, skin and so forth on there. So how did they know that 700 years ago? In the country of Cambodia, wedged between Vietnam and Thailand, there are many uh, temples that were built about 1,000 years ago between 700 A.D. and 1300 A.D., the Ta-Prom Temple was built in 1186 AD, so we know that's when it was built, and you see a lot of these carvings on the stone of these great structures, and all kinds of different animals that we know exactly what they are on these columns. Now, what, pray tell, is this supposed to be? And I actually have a replica of that one. You guys, in between sessions, can come up here and take a look at these. I actually have a replica of this uh, this carving, what's that supposed to be? It'd be hard for a four-year-old to miss what is apparently being depicted in this carving. And again, this is precisely what we'd expect if humans actually saw these creatures, which is what we would predict. And interestingly, in the case of the, the stegosaurs, we didn't even, whenever the stegosaurs originally discovered, they didn't know what to do with those plates that are on the back because the plates are not actually attached to the spine, they're attached to the skin, and so they're always found just separate from them. So it took a lot of paleontology and studying and finding more fossils in order to figure out, oh, these, these actually stand up on the top of the spine. They originally, whenever they first made the depictions of the stegosaur, they laid them down and they called him stegosaur, which basically means uh, roof lizard, because they thought they were kind of like um, shingles on the top of the back of the, of the stegosaur. And now they know they stick up. Well, it took guys studying this kind of thing for their entire life and having lots of communication with other scientists all around the world to figure this out. So how did the guys a thousand years ago know to put the plate standing up like that on the back? Well, again, you'd expect that if humans saw these things. In the Havasupai Canyon, in the Grand Canyon, you see ancient petroglyphs as well, and notice the carving there in the bottom left of the image. Looks very much like a theropod or possibly Edmontosaurus. Also have a replica of that one here on the table as well. 
And notice he's standing in an upright position, balanced on his tail, that suggests that the artist seems to have seen this guy alive. Lots of examples we could give of this. In, in, in Ica, Peru, you have the discovery of thousands of burial stones where people would put these stones in among the dead bodies and so forth uh, whenever they would bury uh, people. This ancient Indian civilization that it was hundreds of years ago and, and the st many of the stones portray all kinds of things, basic human activity, there's pornography and so forth on them. There's known, there's known human species on there. But then you also have a lot of these that depict what are clearly dinosaurs, dinosaurs interacting with humans, and again, anatomically correct dinosaurs. With, for example, your dermal frills that weren't even reported to exist on these, the long neck, long tail dinosaurs, your sauropods, until the early 1990s. Uh, again, I have a couple of those. Um, these aren't, aren't even replicas. These are the, some of the real stones I have available up here, and we've got more of them at AP as well. In Acambaro, Mexico, we have ancient dinosaur figurines that date to 200 AD or before. Uh, you have uh, the Carlisle Cathedral in the United Kingdom carvings on the tomb of Bishop Richard Bell, who we know died in 1496. That's when these carvings were made. And notice again what looks astonishingly like a sauropod dinosaur with the long neck, long tail. Uh, fighting apparently another dinosaur possibly. This is uh, many other examples. This one is from 200 AD, a Roman mural possibly depicting uh, more like a plesiosaur, which is basically your sauropod of the sea. These are the long neck marine reptiles in the ocean. Uh, this one is believed to go all the way back to uh, right after the flood, a depiction of uh, sauropods on an ancient Mesopotamian cylinder seal that was used by like kings and so forth. This is a petroglyph from northern Arizona believed to be 800 years old or so. So a host of clear-cut dinosaur-like carvings and figurines, exactly what we would predict to find if humans saw these guys and interacted with them. And very difficult for evolutionists to explain if humans never saw these magnificent creatures. And you see them do some interesting gymnastics to try to uh, squirm out of the implication because according to them, humans never saw these guys. We never saw these guys alive. We didn't live with them. We were separated. Many uh, examples of other controversial human artifacts like this pickaxe encased in stone. We have a replica of this one at AP. And this is Cretaceous stone this was found as. This is supposed to be dinosaur rock and yet you find what is clearly a human pickaxe in that. Uh, you find, for example, fossilized, well, you tell me, what does that look like to you? What does that look like there? Looks like a bipedal human, not even ape, and what appears to be a theropod dinosaur footprint. And uh, I saw a cast of this one, actually, in Arkansas. And so these are artifacts that, again, argued to have been laid down during the time of the dinosaurs, and yet you have a human footprint in the middle of it. So... We would say this is probably towards the end of the flood when the final layers of sediment are being laid down at that point, the land dwelling life is being wiped out and, uh, and we'll talk more about that. But again, skeptics have to do some gymnastics to try to explain these strange anomalies like that. And all, some of them may or may not be what they seem, but we would certainly be able to explain why they would be there. We would predict this kind of thing to be the case. Uh, we'd expect there to be evidence of humans and dinosaurs coexisting. 
So you've got physical evidence like that. You also have historical evidence. You have stories that have been passed down through the millennia about dinosaurs. And again, the evolutionists don't even deny this. Now, of course, the term dinosaur wasn't used, but you wouldn't expect it to be used. That wasn't even invented until the 1840s. Instead, the term that is used would be our term for dragon to describe these creatures that when they have drawings of them, they are clearly these reptilian, large reptilian creatures, a lot of times with a long neck, long tail, the ones we would say we would call dinosaurs today. And of course, you see embellishments that have been made through the years in the same way that if, if you caught a fish this big, right? You know, you tend to maybe make some embellishments on some of the things that you, the stories that get passed down and so forth. But you'd expect there to be stories about the interactions and you find them everywhere across the planet. It's hard to, of course, walk into a Chinese food restaurant. Many Mexican food restaurants have these dragon depictions and tales of, of American Indians encountering them. And over in England, of course, you have your knights fighting these big reptilian creatures like that. We even have Sumerian stories that go back to the third millennium BC that have dragon slaying. We would say this is after the flood, probably within a few hundred years. And the depictions of the dragons from these stories, again, are very much like what we understand the dinosaurs look like. Ancient, respected historians give descriptions of creatures that, again, sound like dinosaurs, including the Greek historian Herodotus, Josephus, Marco Polo, and others. Again, exactly what we'd predict if dinosaurs and humans did, in fact, coexist. And then some people say, well, I mean, then why doesn't the Bible mention these guys? And I would say, well, the Bible doesn't mention all kinds of things, including, you know, the giraffe and the panda bear. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. It's not the point of the Bible is to tell you everything that's ever existed. The Bible has a certain me message that it's trying to tell you. But interestingly, the Bible still does allude to some creatures that once again sound very much like the dinosaurs or in the case of the marine uh, reptiles, those, those would not be dinosaurs. But when you turn to Job 40 and 41, you read about these creatures that coexisted with Job. According to chapter 40, verse 15, God made them along with Job. They're there together. So standing back and thinking about the book of Job, um, kind of the message of Job. Remember, all this terrible stuff happens to Job, and he's not happy about it. He doesn't do what Satan said he would do, but he does kind of get a bit, a bit of an attitude. He doesn't understand why this is happening to him. This isn't fair. He wants his day in court. And remember, starting in chapter 38, God starts responding to Job and saying, look, you're just not in a position to understand what I'm doing and why I do it. You just don't have the knowledge and the wisdom that you need to understand what's going on here. You're not in a position to be demanding this kind of explanation from me. So basically, God gives Job not a Bible lesson. He gives him a science lesson. And one after the other, he parades before Job the wonders of the creation. It's one of the reasons why it's a good thing to study science. God wants us to do that. You can learn about him. And that's what God does for Job. He parades before Job all these wonders of his creation, humbling Job with the fact that he's not in a position to know what God should be doing or should not be doing. Remember, Job had essentially demanded an explanation. And God's response was, no, you don't, you don't deserve that. You don't know what's going on. And so he shows Job real things. These aren't made up mythical things. These are real things that, that happen around us, real creatures that we see around us on the planet. He, he shows him real world phenomena, real world phenomena, one after the other, real world creatures. Again, not figurative, 
He's humbling Job with evidence that proves that Job is in no position in his knowledge to question God. And God's speech culminates, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're God, what do you think you would pick out as the culminating examples of the awesomeness of God? He picks out what the text calls behemoth and leviathan. Behemoth is described as his strength being in his hips. His power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He's the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he's not disturbed. He's confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes or one pierces his nose with a snare. And there's a lot of discourse over the identity of this creature as well as the one in the next chapter. No one seems to know for certain who they, who they were, which is why, interestingly, all the other creatures are actually translated into known species. But Behemoth and Leviathan, nobody knows for sure what these are. And some will even say, well, there's just no way. These guys are not even real. These are just figurative, mythical creatures that God made up. Well, would that make sense in the context here? I mean, up to this point, God, again, is showing Job real-world examples to show him what? What God has done and is doing. He's proving something to Job. It would kind of defeat the purpose if he then made up a creature that he never actually created. So God is overwhelming Job with the things that he has done and is doing in the created order. And again, it says in Job 40, 40 and verse 15 that God made behemoth along with you, meaning in the same way God made Job, he made behemoth. This is a real creature. So scholars mystified by what in the world behemoth is because it doesn't match anything really today. And in many cases, the, these commentaries and so forth are writing before the dinosaurs had even been really become popular. I mean, they were only just then being discovered in the mid to late 1800s. Most of them had been trained to believe that either the dinosaurs did not exist, or even if they did exist, that humans never saw these creatures. And so they quickly assume behemoth must have been a creature living today. And so they pick out the best thing they can, the hippo or the elephant for the behemoth. And then they assume the Leviathan must be a crocodile. But again, you, you get into the nitty gritty of what these descriptions are saying and they, they don't match. So contextually, God is highlighting, for example, he is, when you, when you look through the creatures God highlights, he is highlighting certain features of each of these animals because those features are significant in some way. And interestingly, behemoth's strength is highlighted. But notice that it's his hips and, it's and his stomach muscles. Okay, now a hippo's notable strength is where? His jaws. It's not his hips. It has one of the strongest sets of jaws among the herbivores. The elephant strength, also, it's not in his hips. It's in his neck and his head. And in recent research indicates that the elephant actually carries 60% of its weight on forward, on its front feet, not his back. 
So its center of mass is actually forward in his body, not backward. And ironically, the same study compared the elephants to the sauropod dinosaurs, the long neck, long tailed dinosaurs, to try to get a comparison between the elephant and the sauropods. And they discovered the sauropod is opposite to the elephant. It actually has its center of mass being, guess where? Towards the hips, not its forelegs. The text says, behemoth moves his tail like a cedar. So you know, the cedar trees are highlighted in several places in scripture because of their immense size and strength, okay? This is highlighted all over the place. And not, if you were to stop and think, what kind of animals would you compare their tail to a tree? I can't even really think of one, especially not the hippo. You wouldn't pick out the hippo's tail and say, oh man, this is something you all need to take a look at this, right? It's basically a sprig, but guess what you would look at and say, that looks like a tree sticking out of the rear end of this animal. So notice also from the text, behemoth's bones are like beams of bronze. I think of large, solid metal rods, which is actually how the commentator Albert Barnes highlights this in the Hebrew. Elephant bones have cavities in them with spongy bone. Hippos have a marrow cavity that makes up 55% of the total thickness of the femur. It doesn't fit. But the sauropod dinosaurs, again, with the long neck, long tails, had legs and ribs, interestingly, of solid bone, which is unlike other animals. They were unique in order to support the immense size of these guys. Notice also the text says behemoth is the first of the ways of God. This guy is chief in exhibiting what God is like. And again, I have trouble looking at the hippo and saying, this is it, guys. Take a look at the hippo when you have way more awesome options available to you. Notice also that the text highlights that the mountains yield food for behemoth, but hippos spend much of their day where? In the water, they gotta stay cool. So notice it just doesn't fit the hippo. You've got to point and look at something that is extinct and way different than anything we see going on today. You look at the fossil record, this fits the dinosaurs, the sauropod dinosaurs. Well, the crocodile doesn't match with the description of Leviathan either. And interestingly, commentators want to inject things into the text that aren't there. They'll put, you know, well, it looks like these things are happening. You know, yeah, his sneezings, when he sneezes, it flash, flashes forth what looks like light, they say. The problem is that you do see that kind of terminology all over the place in the text when the author intends that, but you don't see it everywhere. His eyes, notice, are like the eyelids of the morning, but his sneezings, they flash forth light. There's no like there. Burning lights come out and sparks, not it looks like those things happen, it does happen. Notice that smoke comes out, period, but then a figurative description of that smoke is given. It's as or like a boiling pot and burning rushes. See, that part's figurative, but not the smoke part. There's smoke coming out of this creature. 
His breath kindles coals, period. A flame goes out of his mouth. His undersides are like sharp potsherds that spread pointed marks in the mire. And again, that just doesn't fit with your crocodile whose tracks are smooth. There's no pointed marks. It's smooth with a single line down the middle. What's that from? Is that from his belly? No. What's it from? Anybody know? It's his tail. It's not his belly. Notice the text says, kind of like the comment about behemoth being first or chief of the ways of God. On earth, there is nothing like this guy. He beholds every high thing. How could you make a statement like that and apply it to the crocodile? Again, when you have creatures that once existed that fit that description so much better, it just really wouldn't make sense to select the hippo or the elephant and the crocodile. They, they just don't fit these guys as being the crowning examples of God's power and awesomeness. So think about it. Knowing what we do know now about the animal kingdom throughout history, and, and we know that the evidence that, that we've already looked at with the physical and historical evidence indicates the dinosaurs were around after the flood at the time of Job, then if you, as God, are going to show Job the most humbling examples of the animal kingdom on the planet, what are you going to pick? Well, someone says, and I just, and notice that it becomes a faith issue. I just, I can't believe that. I can't believe the Bible on this. How is it possible? Nothing can breathe fire. Well, you might just as easily ask, how is it possible that an electric eel can be electric? How did that evolve? The first electric eel in water, okay? He's able to give an 860 volt shock and not hurt himself? How does that happen? Or the lightning bug, where the, in lots of these bioluminescent creatures we're finding all over the deep ocean, they can emit their own light. How did they evolve that? The bombardier beetle that's able to create its own chemical reaction internally. It's basically an explosion. It brings, it brings it to nearly the boiling point of water and then it sprays it like a machine gun on its predators. You can actually go and look at videos of this where they'll slow it down and you can see it's like it shoots like a machine gun at its okay how in the world did that evolve imagine the first bombardier beetle accidentally getting a chemical reaction inside of it why didn't it blow up how did, how did that happen i've seen no adequate explanation of this by evolutionists they got nothing but we're constantly learning more and more about what is possible in god's creation why not the ability to say emit a chemical that when it meets oxygen, it ignites. I mean, why not? I mean, we look at all the other kind of creatures that are out there. I mean, we even have creatures that in the water, in the deep, can emit chemicals that will then glow underwater and it attracts creatures and then this creature can attack them, but it'll spit out something that'll start glowing and, and distract its, its uh, creature, other creatures and so forth. Someone says, well, you know, the hippo and the crocodile, I mean, they, they were over there in the area where we think Job lived. And so he would have known what God was talking about if he picked the hippo and the crocodile. And there's no evidence of the dinosaurs in that area. And, you know, there just wouldn't be enough vegetation. I mean, for a sauropod dinosaur over there in the desert, 
Well, notice there's a lot of, I don't know how many assumptions you caught in those arguments. I've heard this kind of argument, maybe, but they're making a lot of assumptions. First of all, there is evidence of the dinosaurs over there. You just gotta look in the right time period. But also, an assumption is made about the nature of the area where Job is living. First of all, we're not even sure where he lived, but assuming it is over there in kind of the Middle East area, what was the area he lived in like after the flood before Abraham? Secular scientists have recently acknowledged that the Sahara Desert actually formed just a few thousand years ago and it was lush prior to that. So when you convert their dates to the biblical time frame, which we'll talk about some of that in the second session, the formation of the Sahara Desert formed just about probably 1500 BC, about the time of Moses. Well after the time of Job, before that it was lush. But also it seems to me that the biggest problem with the argument that God couldn't be talking about dinosaurs because Job just wouldn't have seen these guys in the area, this is assuming that God is only showing Job things that Job had actually witnessed. But we know that God wasn't doing that because he had already highlighted several other things to Job that Job would never have witnessed or even known about if God didn't tell him about it. The laying of the foundation of the earth, chapter 38, verse 4 and following, the springs of the sea and the recesses of the deep that we've only discovered in the last 150 years. The laws of nature and how they govern the earth, that's Job 38, 33. God seemed to have been picking out awesome features of the earth, regardless of whether or not Job had seen it. In fact, that's kind of the point. The fact that Job hadn't seen them. God is saying, have you noticed this over here? Do you know about this? <laughs> You're not in a position, you don't even know what's going on out there. So why in the world would God not show Job the dinosaurs? It makes sense. That's something you would expect to happen. There's evidence of dinosaur-like creatures coexisting with humans all over the planet. We've really only uh, touched the surface of this. So if this is a fascinating study to you as much as it is to me, be sure to check out uh, Kyle Butt and Eric Lyons' book that we sell called The Dinosaur Delusion, which uh, gives the references for a lot of this stuff as well as responses to quibbles that are made. And then uh, my dad wrote this book, Behemoth and Leviathan, in the last year or so that looks specifically at these creatures in the Bible and what we can learn about them. So Bill Nye's charge that the creation model can't make predictions is simply not sustainable. We can make many predictions, including predictions about the dinosaurs that are verified when we go look at the actual evidence. Uh, real quick before we go ahead and take our first break, uh, let me tell you about uh, teens. I want to make sure you're, you're aware of some of these books that will be useful to you uh, in your teen years. This book, Truth Be Told, goes way back, but we recently, just in the last year, updated this, expanded it, and uh, make sure it's ready for you. This, this, this was written originally by Kyle and Eric. They went in and looked at the kind of textbooks you're going to be studying right now in your teen years, your biology, your earth science, your life science and looked in the sections on the evidences for evolution that you're gonna learn about. And this book was written as a response to make sure that you know what does the evidence really say? What would the Bible say about this? So this is, this is a book designed to help prepare you specifically for these kind of courses you're gonna be taking. Flooded is the book that I finished up a year and a half ago. Uh, this book is more like, um, it's not just responding to evolution. This is more like, what does is, what is the creation model actually say and how does science support this? 
can the creation model explain the evidence? Does it show, uh, does the evidence show that the flood really happened and what did happen? So this is a way for you to learn about the amazing things God has done, especially with regard to the flood. So, uh, and there's a website for this as well that gives you lots of extra information and, and uh, videos that I made for it as well. Uh, Out with Doubt goes way back. This is Kyle's book for teens, Surveying Christian Evidences, and then it, the sequel to it, A Matter of Faith. So these give you lots of evidences for creation and against evolution, and there's information in there on the dinosaurs. This is probably one of my top five favorite books at AP, even though it's a teen book. It shows you what the, the big arguments that you're going to hear in these teen years that people make against God. You know, God is, he's a homophobe. And he, he encourages genocide. I mean, he tells the Israelites to go in and mow down people, women and children, even animals and kill. I mean, what kind of God is that? That's no loving God. And he encourages slavery. And how do you explain that all these terrible things are happening to innocent children and God is not doing anything about it? And so these are the kind of attacks you're going to be hearing if you're not already hearing it. This book helps prepare you to deal with that stuff. This is our new book, uh, a couple years old now, on just on the existence of God that Kyle and, and Eric wrote for teens. And there's lots of videos that they made that go along with these as supplemental information. So check that out. And actually, there's a second one in this, in this series now, too. This one's on the existence of God. There's one now on the inspiration of the Bible as well. And then we'll have one on the deity of Christ that comes out this summer. And again, videos for these, uh, very sharp books. Okay, uh, I've, I've always argued that um, you guys, you teens, are actually the front lines of, of uh, evangelism. Because once people become, once they get to my age, they're less open to reason. They've already decided what they're going to believe and they won't listen. You guys are actually the front lines of evangelism. It's, it's at your age when young people are looking for answers. This is the time you need to be ready to talk to your friends and evangelize to them. And so I'm a big proponent for giving you the kind of tools you need to be able to do that. Uh, these two books um, I, I wrote to help you uh, know the kind of verses that I think you need to have memorized and how to use those in evangelism situations. And then this book is very relevant to you as you're entering into these uh, teen years and are dating, getting involved in romance. You know, what does the Bible say about this uh, where you can conduct, conduct yourself in a way where you don't lose your salvation, or make major mistakes that will affect you the rest of your life. Uh, this is a resource we have, several magazines, uh, issues of magazines that are good, that are aimed specifically to you guys as teens, the kind of things that will be helpful to you uh, in your study and evangelism. I also have some stuff for younger kids, like our dinosaur coloring book that would be very, very relevant this weekend, and some learn-to-read type books uh, for kids as well, any parents that have kids that young, and our Digger Doug show, Again, teens probably don't particularly care about Digger Doug, but hey, I mean, these guys, hey, if you, if you liked Barney growing up, which I did not, uh, but anyway, Digger Doug is way cooler than, than Barney anyway, and t-shirts even for kids as well, we still have, have some of those left, I don't know if we're actually going to reprint those. All right, and a monthly Christian Evidences Science and Scripture type magazine that you can actually get a subscription to for kids. Highly recommend that as well. And even if you know some kids, neighbors and so forth that, uh, that would, would benefit from having a subscription. Uh, my wife and I just set up a subscription to our, for our neighbors that have some younger kids down the road. And we haven't even told them yet. They're just going to start getting these issues in the mail. They're probably going to wonder where they come from. And eventually we'll, 
people talk to them and tell them, hey, by the way, <laughs> I know that's probably confusing to you why that showed up, but you know. Wonders of God's Creation is a book Eric wrote um, that highlights some many of the amazing animals of the creation that defy evolutionary explanation. Dinosaurs Unleashed, uh, this one goes way back, but again, we just updated this one, added a lot more to it and brought in all the latest science. And uh, Jeremy Pate got in there and did, uh, did the redesign of the, uh, the physical art and so forth. He actually drew this on a computer. Can you believe that? I don't even, uh, that's, that's beyond me. That's pretty cool. Dinos the Dinosaur Field Journal, here's another one. It's probably in my top five. Uh, this, is, uh, this is targeting younger kids but uh, than you teens, but the idea is imagine if you live right after the flood and, and the dinosaurs are repopulating, and so you decide you're going to follow these guys around and study the dinosaurs, and so this is your field journal, and so it actually is sketches and the kind of things this guy is seeing about the dinosaurs. They're pretty cool. Pictures speak a thousand words, and evolutionists have long had a monopoly on dinosaur images. So if, if, you, were, <clears throat> if you were to think about um, dinosaurs in your mind, and, and now think about not just the dinosaur itself, but the environment that it's in, you most likely are picturing an environment that was painted by the evolutionists based on their own assumptions. Like, for example, you find the dinosaurs... Their fossils are found in rock strata where there's a lot of volcanic rock. There's igneous rock there. So what do they assume? They assume, well, there must have been, they lived at a time where there's lots of volcanoes. Well, we would say the dinosaurs are found in flood rock, and the reason there's a lot of igneous rock is because there's a lot of volcanic activity during the flood. So if you want to know what the environment they lived in looked like, that's totally different. You would depict a different environment. They're starting from totally different assumptions, and so the drawings you've seen are going to be incorrect from a biblical perspective. And so in our original Dinosaurs Unleashed, we had a guy, Louis Lavoy, do some paintings that kind of depicted, you know, what, what might have been the kind of thing you would see with humans and dinosaurs interacting, for example, right after the flood. And so we put these into poster form, have these actually up here on the stage, so beautiful type posters would be good for your room, Bible classes, that sort of thing. One guy came up to me and said, uh, you know, I, he said he put one of these up in his office at work and he's had more Bible discussions from that uh, than anything else. All right, uh, that is the end of our first session. So I would encourage you to uh, check out the material we have back there. I brought some of our dinosaur stuff, a lot of this dinosaur stuff I've just shown. And then we'll start back, what, in 30, 15 minutes? Yeah, 15 minutes. Um, so we'll take a 15-minute break. We are going to have refreshments now. The kids are going to be going in and out of the fellowship room back there. So uh, for adult refreshments, we've got the, I think, the old fellowship room or this big classroom that's kind of right here on the side is where our refreshments are. So feel free to go out that way or feel free to go in the back in the lobby. We've got... The petting zoo outside, if y'all want to go check out the animals and the lizards and the snakes and all that, we've got the Apologetics Press books. If you want to browse and, and pick up a couple of those and take home with you, then, then those would all be good. It is 10.15 right now. We are Tyler right on schedule. So by the way, the stuff on the left out there is free. The stuff on the right is not. Some people get confused. <laughs> don't run off with an $80 study Bible, please. Uh, and don't, don't forget about this stuff here. 
to check this out up here. And, and also, young people, be jotting down any kind of questions you might have related to this stuff or any kind of evolution, science-related creation, flood questions, because we'll give you an opportunity after lunch to be able to ask those kind of things. And even if you think of one later, you know, I'll give you my email address. You guys can always contact me and let me know if you run across kind of questions that you're, it's inevitable you're gonna have questions during these, during these years. And that's what we do at AP. We're here to do the research for you and package it where you can get the answers you need, okay? So be jotting that stuff down. All right, at 10.30, come back in, sit down, and we'll get started again. <laughs>